Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you're a speaking God, that you love to speak to us. And we thank you that your words have great power to create the universe, to awaken deadened hearts. And we pray that you'll send your spirit to all of us, help us to be attentive to your word. And we pray that as your word comes to our hearts, that it will accomplish its mission. And we pray that as, as, as a result, we, we will grow together as a church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the defining moments of the church history is Pentecost, as we read in chapter, Acts chapter 2. When we observe the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Well, this really is on par with Christmas, when Jesus comes down to earth, and on par with Christ, uh, on Easter, where uh, Jesus opens the gate of death that has been bolted locked throughout the human history. And when the Holy Spirit comes on the, Pente- on the Pentecost, Peter stands up and quotes from Joel 2, uh, 2.28. So if you read uh, 2, Acts chapter 2, verse 17, he quotes from Joel 2.28 and says, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit marks the beginning of a different era. And Joel calls it the last days. It marks the beginning of the time called last days. This is the last days. Just as the coming of Christ marked the, 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 our time, our, our calendar as before Christ, B.C., and in the, in the year of our Lord, A.D., Pentecost is just as significant. It marks the beginning of the last days. And we know that the last days have arrived because this old people receive the Holy Spirit in a way unlike any other time before. It was just given, it wasn't just given to a few people to, for a specific purpose. It was poured out upon everyone. Sons and daughters, young and old, servants and masters, men and women, Joel says. God will send down his spirit. And that spirit had come on the Pentecost, and it has never left the church. He is with all those who call on the name of Christ. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter stands up and preaches this stirring sermon at the risk of his own life. Only 40 days after Jesus' execution, 40 days after their leader was executed, So Peter stands up and boldly proclaims the resurrection of Jesus. And at the end of the sermon, as we see in verse 41, 3,000 people are converted on that day. The community of God is formed. And that is the climax of the biblical story. You know, we went through Christmas just now. We talked a lot about how amazing God becoming a human being is. But Christmas isn't the climax of the biblical story. You see, God came for a purpose. And in March, we'll talk about Easter, how amazing it is that Jesus defeated death and rose again, signaling uh, the, the, the fact that we will all rise again with him. But that even isn't the climax of the biblical story. Jesus died and rose again for something. Then God, through Christ, sends the Holy Spirit. But that itself 
isn't the climax either. The climax is people receiving the Spirit and forming the end-time community, the community of the last days. The climax is, uh, the, the, the biblical story reaches its climax when the people of God come together in the power of the Spirit, when the disparate groups of people, people from different nations, people from different economic class, gender, education levels, language, ethnicity, skin color, culture, personalities, come together to form one community of God, the church. Believe it or not, church is the climax of God's story. God's creative acts. Church is the reason for which Jesus came and then died and rose again. Church is the reason for which, for, for which God pours out his spirit. God, Jesus breathed his spirit to all of us, not so that I can be drawn closer to God, not, not, not so that I can live with God, but so that we could live together with God. And we live in an individualistic age, and that might seem very strange to us. We live private lives with little interference from others. In the past, people had to be more dependent upon one another. People came together in guilds as carpenters or clothes makers or whatever, and learning and making things depended on knowing the right people and having this relationship Then the Industrial Revolution came, and machines started making things for us. No longer relationships were essential to learning and trading. And then the market economy boomed. Now, if we have money, we could walk into any shop and get everything that we need without talking to anyone. The point is that it's a lot easier to be independent, and the culture forces us, in many ways, to be independent and and independence is easier in many other ways, too. I mean, we just live in this individualistic age where I am the center. And we've become much more of a transient society as a result as well. There are very few people who stay in the same job for 10, 20, and 30 years. Loyalty to one company, to one group of people, is very rare. You can work for one company for 20 years, and the next day, next year, you, can, you might work for the competitor. And marriages don't seem to last either. Over 50% of marriage ends in divorce. The churches, too, have become a part of the market economy. People go to churches to look for things that they want. They go wander from one church to another, depending on what I could get from this church. We have become individualistic and thinking constantly about me, what I want, what I need, and I govern our thoughts and actions in almost all things. But that goes against our nature. We are a generation that struggle also most with loneliness. Surrounded by sea of people in places like Hong Kong, we're lonely. Loneliness is the greatest of modern disease. Because human beings are essentially relational and essentially communal. We cannot find real fulfillment in life unless we find the life in community meaningful. And it's a well-known fact that most of the psychological uh, diseases, problems, are solved best within the context of a loving community. 
So time to time, we open certain segments of our lives to certain people because that's required of living in this, community, in, in this society. But according to the Bible, the entire Christian life, including spiritual growth, battling sin and Satan, serving God, learning, caring, living, are all intended to be done in a community. The formation of the church, the community of God, is not... Uh, the, the goal is not in, uh, salvation of individuals. The passages that we studied about a month ago, the whole uh, sermon series on Ephesians, talked to you in plural, suggesting that we do everything with others. The writer of Hebrews says, let us consider how, how we may spur on one another toward love and good deeds. Hebrews 10.24 John Wesley, in the preface to one of his earliest hymns, says, The gospel of Christ knows no religion but social, no holiness but social holiness. The body of Christ is incomplete without us, and we are incomplete without the body of Christ. The community life is not an option for a Christian, but it's a basic aspect of being a Christian and so with that in mind, this is the first reason why we're launching this small group. The reason why we think, I, I just love to have 100% of the church be in a small group. The thing is, in God's inscrutable and transcendent will, God brought you and me, all of us together, to form Shatin Anglican Church. We're all different, to be sure, but we are to be one. To be one community. And churches like Shatin Church is really what God had in mind when he came down, when he rose again, when he sent the Spirit. God brought us together. We must start to live together as a community, to form a community. But in a church this size, um, it's not a huge church, but even in, this, in a church this size, it's almost impossible to get to know everyone together. But we can be a church with small groups, with people in the church. And small groups aren't something that the church does. Small groups is what really the church is. The relationships that you form, the prayers that you say, the sharing that you do, the belonging that you feel in a small group really is the church. Small groups really are what the church is. So do think about that in the coming days. So we're meant to be the community of Christ, the body of Christ. But then, what kind of a community, what kind of small groups, and what kind of group should we be as a, as a church? When the Holy Spirit came and 3,000 people came together in the name of Christ, what did they do? What were the distinguishing marks of this community? Well, Luke then tells us what the Holy Spirit-filled church did next. So look to our passage in verse 42. They devoted themselves, as we read there, to four things. To the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And verse 47, the last line of our reading together, says that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So they apparently devoted themselves also to evangelize and welcome to people into the church. And you'll be happy to know that I'm not going to go through all 
the four or five characteristics of the church, but we will go through the first two. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. And on April 29th, we'll cover the rest of the three. Um, Yeah, so let's turn to the apostles' teaching. The first thing that we're told that the Spirit-filled community did, devoted themselves to, is to the apostles' teaching. The apostles here are a different group of people than pastors or bishops. They were entrusted with the unique responsibility of being the primary, the first witness of Jesus. They were entrusted with recording to us the Bible so we get to know who Jesus is. And for us, then, apostles' teaching must is summarized in the Bible. The thing that we must devote ourselves to doing first and foremost is to studying the apostles' teaching, studying the Bible. And the word devoted means obstinately persistent. This isn't something that they did time to time, when they had time, when it was convenient, when the work wasn't too busy, or when we didn't have so much homework to do, or when we didn't have exams in front of us. Studying the Bible, dwelling on the apostles' teaching, is something that they devoted themselves to put as their utmost priority. Hinted is the picture of Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of the sinners or sit in the way of mockers, company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on it day and night. Learning the Bible was so important that the one, when Paul gives characteristics of elders, the one qualification-related thing that he gives is ability for that person to teach. Everything else is concerned, concerns the character of the leader. But one qualification-related thing that he says is important is his ability to teach. And as we teach, we must learn. Let me tell you why I think this is so important. As you know, the picture of membership given in the Bible is that we are like different body parts. A finger is very different from the heart or skin from a liver. The fact is, we are all very different. We come from Philippines, United States, New Zealand, while others, some of us have never, have never left Hong Kong. Some of us enjoy being alone most of the time, and some of us are gregarious by nature. And some love math, and some take delight in, uh, in reading. Some enjoy sports, while others enjoy chatting with friends. The point is that we are all very different. And the only way that we can work together as a body of Christ is if we're all connected to the same head. The only way that the organs as different as skin and liver can work together is if they're united under the direction of the head as they do their different works. And it's only when we take signal from the same head, when we're connected to the same Christ, same purpose and same vision, that people as different as skin and liver can live and work together. That is why the Spirit moves people to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. 
this commitment to study the scripture together, this commitment to submit under the same authority of scripture allows us to be one community with one mind. This is how God builds his community by deepening our knowledge of him together so that we can love and care for one another and grow with one another, but also grow to be able to function together while maintaining our differences. It's when we are connected to the mind of Christ and united with the same knowledge and purpose and vision. And learning together is different from teaching it. It might be that Pastor Stephen in the past and Pastor Dale have been people who were faithful to the teaching of Scripture. That's quite a different thing than from all of us being a learning community, all of us being committed to learning together. Last week, we were reminded that we were not to conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And renewing of our minds not done passively. It's, non, it's, done, it's done through rigorous studying, underlining our Bibles through discussions, through challenging one another, from learning one, one another, practicing obedience to the, to, to the Scripture, encouraging one another to obey the Scripture together. It is done best in small groups. It is done when we can sit around and ask to each other, ask each other, how, how did you apply that to your life the thing that you learned last week. What does that mean to you in the coming week? We must be a community that's devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's what a Holy Spirit-filled church does. It devotes themselves to the apostles' teaching. But the apostles' teaching is important, but the bulk of this section is devoted to describing the second activity, to the fellowship. And the fellowship is the word koinonia, and I'm sure you've heard this word before. It's a Greek meaning, a Greek word that means intimate sharing. And the word is used for the phrase fellowship of the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. And also for the, our participation, for the fellowship, participation in the body and blood of Christ, in the partaking of the, uh, of, of the communion cup, body and blood of Christ. And the church used this word for unique sharing that Christians have with each other. And this koinonia, and this fellowship is God-given communion, fellowship with one another. And this is the reason why we feel the distance between us and uh, our non-Christian friends and colleagues and family, even though we may have known these people for all of our lives, for much of our lives, we, we know that there is that distance. And it's all the same reason why we feel so intimate and close to people, uh, to, to a Christian that we met five minutes ago, that we connect in a way that we just don't, we can't connect with non-Christians. It's an intimate fellowship that Christ has established for us. So see this close fellowship described in, the, in our passage together. Verse 44. This is all believers were together. I believe this is geographical location, but also their unity. They held everything in common. They no longer championed their own rights, but they saw themselves as belonging to a group. If there was the concept of mine, it was mine to be given away. Mine to be shared. 
They met each other's needs. In verse 46, we're told that they met daily together, ate together. And just a quick side note, this doesn't mean that, um, that the early Christians had disposed of all private properties. I mean, after all, we're told in verse 46 that they met in people's homes. Uh, now, how could they meet at homes unless people had homes? And later on in chapter 5, we hear of um, Ananias and Sapphira who, uh, who are condemned not because they hadn't sold everything that they had, but because they lied about it. They said that they sold everything, but they didn't. Kept some property uh, for themselves. And presumably, many others kept their property. But the important point is that the fellowship touched our wallets, our pocketbooks, how we spend our money. And the community of 3,000 that was born on that Pentecost Sunday met not only in big groups, but also in small groups. So we see in verse 46, they met in the temple, but also in their homes. So one commentator summarizes and says, we can assume that the early believers met in different homes for the equivalent of what we call growth groups or cell groups or discipleship groups. They met together. They shared their lives. They shared their homes. They took part in formal worship in the temple, but they took their fellowship into homes. They broke bread together and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. But by contrast, we so often share only Sunday service. Meeting with this, I know that meeting with each other with each other is difficult. We lead busy lives. I know that there are language barriers, as well cultural barriers. I know that we've worked very hard throughout the week, and on the weekends we're tired. I know that last thing that many of us want to do is to make the effort of getting to know people that we don't know, people who are different from us, people whose lives are very different from ours. Pray for people and spend time with people. But once again, the Bible knows of no individual Christian. You know the difference between the Western and Eastern mindset. Um, we often point out that in the West, the people value individuality. In the East, col- uh, collectivity, diversity, and self expression are encouraged in the West, and conformity, really is underscored in the East. It actually shows up in the way that we write our names. In China, or Korea, where I grew up, we write our surname first, and our given name second. In US or the UK, we write our first name first, and then surname second. In the West, we're known as individual first. And as a member of a group second, I'm Hyu Han in US. But when I go to Korea, my name is Han Hyu. My last name comes first. I'm a member of this group first, and an individual second. And I'm sorry to all the um, our Kiwi, Aussie, and all these other Western brothers and sisters. I think the Christian mindset is closer to the Eastern mindset. We're all given a collective identity, and collective identity first. We are Christians. That comes first. We are members of one God's family. We're given that same last name. 
That has to come first. Our collective identity as Christians must determine our individual identity. But ironically, as having praised all the Eastern mindset here, ironically in Hong Kong, I think the Asian mentality of putting the family first often gets in the way of being the church together. We forget that our earthly, although our earthly family is important, that God has bound us together in God's family, that, that we have a family that will last eternity. God has created the church, the family of Christ, and this family has to be a primary, the, 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 the group that we, we belong to first. And please don't get me wrong, we have all the duties and obligations to the, our earthly family as well, but the call that Jesus makes, I, need to, I think we just need to hear again and again, is to put Christ first and God's family first. So when Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He's not talking to Westerners who find it relatively, relatively easier to leave their family and join a different group. He's talking to Middle Easterns, Middle, Middle Easterners, who's defined by their family life, defined by their belonging to a group. And when Jesus is uh, told that God, uh, that, that his, brothers and, uh, his brothers and sisters and his mother are waiting outside, well, Jesus says, Jesus points out that whoever does the will of his father are his brothers and sisters and his mother. We as a church have become this family of Christ. And too long, we have not taken the church life seriously. The church isn't a building. Church isn't even our time together on Sunday morning. The church is the people of God, the community of God, the family of God. Family whom God has knit us together with. And we cannot be content in spending mere Sunday mornings together. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be part of a church that sits together on Sunday morning. I want to be part of a church where people are in and out of people's homes, where people learn together, relax together, go on trips together, holiday together, hang out together, pray together, do outreach together, to learn together, does evangelism together, share our meals together, sing together with glad and sincere hearts. But if we are to be the church, once again, we must devote ourselves to this fellowship we must remember that through the baptismal water, we're all born again to be in the same family of Christ. We must get to know one another. And there are many ways to start this journey together, but small group, I really think, is a must. Such fellowship cannot happen if, we, if our life together revolves around Sunday mornings. It cannot happen if our meeting is just in a big meeting in a Sunday morning. Even large churches have small groups. The biggest church in, in the world, a full gospel church in Korea, have thousands of small groups. Church in China grew mainly through house churches because in small groups, people experience and, and, and learn to be a family of God. That's where God, we experience God primarily through the loving caring of one another, through learning together and praying together. 
So we must take the church life seriously. Um, and I can, well, I'm going to end. Um, I can do no better than quoting uh, from, uh, from a book that this short two-part sermon series is taken from, um, Living the Living Church by late John Stott. He ends it, uh, he, he, he writes this. We are not only Christian people, but we're also church people. We're not only committed to Christ, but we're also committed to the body of Christ. I trust that none of my readers is that grotesque anomaly, an unchurched Christian. The New Testament knows nothing of such a person. For the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. The church is God's new family. And we must devote ourselves to this family. Before we go on to... um, the, uh, the communion, can we just all take time to pray? And I'm going to give you two minutes, three minutes, to fill out this form. <laughs> fill it out um, and uh, give it to uh, David and Janet in the back, or give it to me. Um, it will start on February, February 5th, but why don't we just take a moment to pray together and um, I'll give you a couple of minutes to fill out this form. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that, that you have saved us. Not, not that we, you have saved me, but you have saved us. We thank you so much that you have knit us together as a body of Christ. And we pray that the fellowship that you've already given us, that we'll realize and flesh out that fellowship. And we pray that as we do that, we'll experience who you are, we'll learn of who you are, that we'll be a church that grows together and be this end-time community that you have meant for us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.